You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 43. My name is Jennifer and I'm your host. Um, Normally, we have two others on the show, two of our regulars, Jen and Chris. However, uh, I recently moved to Ireland, so we're going to have to kind of work around scheduling differences. You may not hear them on every episode um, coming up, but hopefully they'll be able to join us on future shows. Today, they are not with us, um, but I am joined by three experts to talk about biosolids. So today I have Miley Lono-Batura, the Director of Sustainable Biosolids Programs at the Water Environment Federation, Dr. Sally Brown, research professor at the University of Washington, and Chris Piott, director of research recovery at the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority, also known as the D- as DC Water. So thank you guys for being on today and talking to us about this uh, topic. I haven't actually um, learned too much about this before this topic was suggested to me, so I'm really excited to kind of see what you guys um, have to tell us and learn a little bit more about this. Um, So Miley, why don't you start off by kind of explaining to us, uh, first of all, what the water treatment process consists of and then the role of biosolids within that process. Sure, yeah, I always like to kind of paint the picture because I think people don't obviously know what biosolids are right off the bat, but it's basically your treated treated poop, what goes down the pipe. Uh, We're at the end of that pipe trying to find ways to reuse that. So if you had a backstage pass after you flush, you would see this journey that takes it to either your water resource recovery plant where Chris works Mm -hmm. at DC Water, go to your septic tank, or if you have it, you go to your composting toilet. Um, So biosolids are essentially the treated solids from that process. And that started when the um, Clean Water Act came out in 1972. So from that water treatment um, plants were brought online and these solids had to go somewhere and um, since they're treated high in uh, organic matter, great nutrients, there's this great resource that's there to be used. And that's kind of what kicked off the whole biosolids reuse uh, field. And it's um, grown since then, both in quantity and populace um, around the expertise around it and finding ways to reuse it. So it's literally an endless uh, reusable. <laughs> it is product. that. It as is long that. as there are people, we'll always have access to that, right? That is that is just it, and that's one of the things that I think um, we'll talk about today a little bit more too. Is just how it is an endlessly renewable resource that we do have access to. We don't have to mine it. It's actually coming right through the wastewater um, treatment process, and that's a way that we can have something that's always on tap. Um, at our at our use and and ready to go if we need organic matter that we can put back to the ground. Great, um, Dr. Brown. I know you do a lot of research in this area. So, is there anything you would add um, about biosolids or kind of the progression how we got to where we are today? Sure. Um, Miley pointed out that the Clean Water Act was really a big step in making quantities of biosolids uh, increasing quantities in the U.S. But the whole notion of poop as uh, a way to enrich your soil is centuries, centuries old. It used to be night soil, um, widely used, treated, widely used as a fertilizer source in Asia. And it was in the mid 1850s. And it's, it's great stuff for soil. 
But the kicker is without treatment, it can have pathogens in it that make you sick. And that was first realized in England, in London with a cholera epidemic in the 1850s. And it was after that, and also with the growth of cities that we needed to figure out a way to not just take a bucket that you fill at the family outhouse, spread it on the family farm, but to do this on a larger scale and make sure that all the pathogens were killed. And that's what wastewater does. So using biosolids is not new. It's centuries, centuries old. It's a time-tested, proven way to keep soils healthy. Keeping it so that people stay healthy, that you don't get the pathogens, and also that water bodies, so lakes, streams, oceans, that they don't get the nutrients, rather that the soil gets them. That's what wastewater treatment plants do. So I know you said that um, they have to go through a rigorous treatment process. So, so what does that look like? I mean, is it um, filtering, applying chemicals? How does that happen? I think it's Chris's turn and he's really good at this. Sure. Uh, there, are, there are many levels of treatment uh, at a wastewater treatment plant. We don't even call ourselves wastewater treatment plants anymore, but rather resource recovery facilities because we are recovering, of course, water, the world's most precious commodity, but also carbon and nutrients. Um, and, you know, we have pollutant limits that we have to keep out of the receiving waters. In our case, it's the Potomac River which goes out to the Chesapeake Bay, which is an extremely delicate and sensitive and important ecosystem. Um, and if we put too many pollutants and air quotes, carbon and nutrients out there, it upsets the balance and we get algae blooms, we get dead zones and all that. So it's our job, my job as an engineer uh, and director of resource recovery to find a home for those carbon nutrients. You know, that one, one, one person's pollutant is another person's energy and fertilizer. That's what carbon and nutrients are. So our, our process is designed to take those pollutants out of the water. And there's primary treatment, which is just a slowing down of the flow that settles solids to the bottom. And then there's secondary treatment, which is designed to take out the carbon. And then there is tertiary treatment, in our case, uh, designed to take out the nitrogen. The phosphorus drops out in the primaries. And then there's final filtration and we disinfectant and then we neutralize the disinfectant and we put the water back out into the river. Again, the world's most precious commodity. It's the elixir of life, right? Um, and we put it out into the river way cleaner than the water that we pull out for treatment for drinking water. So it's, 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 we're, we're doing a great service, not only for, for the, the ratepayers but also for, for the surrounding environment. I could talk all day about the treatments, you know, that's the water side. And then on the solid side, you take solids from the primary, secondary, and tertiary treatment, blend them all together. And in our case, we have a process called thermal hydrolysis, which precedes digestion. Thermal hydrolysis is a big pressure cooker, absolutely kills all the pathogens. It's 160 degrees centigrade, not Fahrenheit, but centigrade. So it's way above pasteurization. And it's also high pressure. It's like a pressure cooker. Um, and it's, it's as if, you know, if you took a, a bag of pinto beans off the dried pinto beans off the shelf at the grocery store and you brought them home, you split it open and you ate a few, your body would figure out a way to get some of that energy out, but most of that energy would pass through you. But if you put it in a pressure cooker and then mashed it up with a fork and ate it, you would get a lot more energy out of it. And that's what we're doing with thermal hydrolysis for the digesters. We're preparing the food for the hungry microbes in the digesters 
whose job it is to convert organic matter into methane. There, there's a dense population of archaea in there. Archaea, it's not really bacteria, but it's a mi uh, microorganism. Um, and you have archaea in your gut. It's part of the part of part of the the population of microbes that we have in our gut. And we promote the production of methane. We, we convert as many of those solids to methane as possible. In our case, we capture that methane, clean it up, burn it. In turbines, we make eight megawatts of clean, green, renewable power. It's really great. Um, so we're converting some of that carbon into energy. But the digesters are not 100% efficient. And whatever does not get converted to methane comes out of the bottom. And it's now pathogen-free, very stable. And that is our biosols product. In our case, we've branded it as bloom. We squeeze the water out of that, get it to about 30% solids, and that is what we use for as a fertilizer on farms. Uh, we sell it to landscapers. We blend products. Um, so we're really making making great use. I think that we have the best of both worlds. We're making use of some of the carbon to make clean, green, renewable energy, and the rest of it is getting put back on the land. It's really the way that the earth is supposed to work, right? I mean, no other animal, we're part of the animal kingdom, right? No other animal on the planet would dream of scooping up its poop and, and locking it in a landfill. It's just, it's just not the way it's work. it works. We're, we're, we're sort of designed to be inefficient. We use some of what we eat and then the rest of it we're supposed to leave for the forest floor. So again, I could talk forever about this, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll move on to the next question. So let's talk about, um, I guess, the difference between um, using human waste and maybe animal waste as fertilizer. Because I know you said that human waste has to be treated to get it to a point. Does animal waste also have to go through this process? Or is there, is it even a fair comparison to say one is better than the other? Or, you know, can they both be used together? Uh, yeah, they can. They can be used together. They're, they're not exactly the same. Uh, Sally might have an opinion on this as well. And they're different because we're complicated by the fact that we're urban dwellers. And uh, it's not just poop that comes down the, the pipes to the resource recovery facility. There's also everything that, everything that we put into our, our, our sinks and comes down through our, our wash machines and everything and runs off the street, ends up at the treatment plant. And some of that ends up in the biosolids. So we have to have, we have to have uh, very robust pretreatment programs. So we have inspectors that go out and they check with industry to make sure that they're not dumping something illegal into, into the pipes. Um, and it's, a, it's an EPA program in order for us to have a, um, a viable biosolids reuse program, we have to have a pretreatment program. And we go out and inspect, and if we find that they're doing something wrong, you know, we do this clandestine sampling, and if we find out that they're dumping illegally, we have the right to cap their sewers because we hold their permit to discharge. And they, so they take it very seriously because if we do that, they're out of business. Um, so it's complicated by the fact that we're urban dwellers, um, it's, and it's different than manure, but I know basically it's, it's similar. Sally, do you have an opinion on manure? Well, so the deal is, um, Chris works for the municipal structure. He's part of the city. He's like a fireman or a police chief, but of water and wastewater resources, he's like a teacher. Um, so a municipal employee and municipalities are regulated by the government. These are part of your civil servants um, and his job is protecting the environment. Um, when you get to animal manure, the raw ingredients, the basic manure can be fabulous, 
Um, I know my mother used to tell stories of growing up in Brooklyn in the 1930s and going with her, her mom to collect the German word was translated into horse apples to use in the garden. Um, and so my, that's what my dad called them too. <laughs> yeah, so same ethnicity there. Yeah, um, I think so. <laughs> yeah, so, so the deal is the stuff can be great for soil, but just like I talked about night soil, one of the differences with animal manure versus biosolids is it's not part of the infrastructure. It's not part of the municipal government. It's not regulated. It's sort of like, we really want you to do the right thing and use this resource properly. But because they're not part of the municipal infrastructure, it's not like Tyson Foods gets thrown in jail if they don't do it right. And so there's not that regulatory oversight. And so uh, while manures can be great, every year you read about spinach recalls or lettuce recalls and um, food safety issues. And 99.9% .9 of those, that's just a gross estimate, um, can be traced back to manure contamination of what we eat because the pathogens have not always been killed. And I think another to follow on what Sally said, another thing with um, manure versus biosolids is the scale. This, the mere scale of manure versus biosolids is quite, um, quite, you know, it just like takes you back a little bit to like think about it because like for instance, in the US about 7.2 million dry tons are produced annually. And that's about 55% of those are applied to the soils. Um, biosolids, though, are dwarfed by compost generated, which is about 30 million tons. Chemical fertilizers, 55 million tons, and manure is 140 million tons. So, so you know, it's it's quite a big difference. And you also see that of all the total land used for agriculture, which is about 315 million acres, biosolids only makes up 0.1 percent of that total land, whereas manure takes about 7% of that land mass. So it's the mere scale of it all is, is pretty, um, pretty jarring. Yeah, just, just a way to say it is each cow makes one to two dry tons of poop a year. Each person makes less than 50 kilograms of biosolids a year. And we have a lot of cows. We have billions of chickens, a lot of pigs. So there is still the potential for um, contamination from animal waste, which I think most people normally associate with uh, using as a fertilizer, um, except that's not regulated is what you're saying. So, so there actually is probably more of a risk than using biosolids. I think okay. one of the things that's good, and I think Sally and Chris touched upon it too, is that being what being an urban dwelling uh, solid, you solids, resource is that it has had a critical eye on it and that's not a bad thing it's actually made the regulations more robust it's made the products that much more um more of a quality product that we've had to really pay attention to that eye on on the sector to make sure that we are making the best products that we can in accordance to the regulations yeah and on that note i know there has been um some question about you know, the safety of using these, whether there's contamination from pollution, runoff, et cetera. So, so let's talk about, I guess, um, some of the, you know, 
quote unquote risks or misconceptions about the dangers of biosolids? Well, yeah, where, where, where do we, there's, I think the big one that people think about is contaminants, right, that come down through, and that's the one that's getting the, the most, um, the most airtime these days, and it's something that Sally has done a really good job at in her research, because I think that's one of the other things that um, by having a researcher on here, we inherently want to, you know, demonstrate that research is a critical part of biosolids management. Um, but it's also one of those things that is very, very much um, has a misconception around what it means to have pollutants and actually the presence just equal equaling risk isn't necessarily true. And so how do we find out that information through the research to find out what is the risk really? And I think that Sally could speak to some of that on her, the research she's done. I will do a hands-on demonstration right now. <laughs> so here, I don't obviously wear a lot of makeup, but here I have my um, lip balm and I'm putting it on. Oh, and you know, if you have chap lips, that feels great. Does that make you concerned? No. I, no? No. Okay. So the deal is there's a very high possibility that in this lip balm, there's uh, at least one kind of a class of compounds called perfluorinated organics or PFOS. And these are currently like scary chemicals, very scary chemicals. Mm -hmm. Now, um, biosolids, the Sierra Club just had a little, oh my God, the, the sky is falling because you can detect these in biosolids. Now, the question is, you can detect them in most biosolids because we have these amazing technical abilities that we can detect concentrations in parts per billion, not even parts per million, but parts per billion. So a part per billion is, I may get it wrong, is a penny in a million dollars or some, some ridiculous tiny quantity. Um, and how can it hurt me? The deal is a new study just showed that the concentration of these compounds in cosmetics like lip gloss, lip balm, mascara are the same as in biosolids. So it's just what, what's happening is people are so worried and want to not worry and they, they get scientists have not always done a, a good service here because we're concerned about behavior of these, all these compounds that we make in the environment. What the scientists failed to say is the best way not to have these compounds in the environment is to not use them in our homes. And the vast majority of compounds that people are concerned about in biosolids, like PFAS, like pharmaceuticals, um, like antimicrobials, like different kinds of plastics, your exposure in your home is typically a thousand to a million times higher than you would see in one day than you would see in biosolids. So if you have a headache and you want to take extra strength Tylenol, you would have, you can find the compound that's active in Tylenol in biosolids, but you'd have to eat 30 tons of treated poop to get the same relief that you would get from two tablets of Tylenol. And with putting this on my lips, 
I just exceeded any potential exposure pathway than I would ever have for biosolids. To build on that too, uh, there's studies just to, to use the, the PFOS example, there are studies in Europe and elsewhere that show that, it, that these compounds, PFOS compounds uh, are in household dust. And it's largely because they're, they're used for fire retardant in carpeting and furniture and in clothing and in, it's in dryer lint and everything. And we looked at many, many countries across the globe and the average sample for those was something like 550 parts per billion, which is 10 times what we found in our biosolids when we tested it. And there, there's, an, there's a direct exposure pathway. We're inhaling the dust. So, you know, the uh, risk and toxicity has to do with three things. There's three legs to the stool of toxicity. One is concentration. We know that. We've tested it. The other is exposure pathway, which is limited if, if not non-existent for biosolids. And, uh, and then it's dose response, which we don't know. So there's research going on right now to, to look at all these things. And we are, we're continuing to watch, watch the, uh, the, the, the research and the results. And if something is found that um, leads us to believe that what we are doing is wrong for the environment or for human health, we will certainly change what we do. But right now, as Sally said, we're at much higher risk walking around in our homes. Yeah, it doesn't make you feel good about being in your house now, does it? No, it doesn't. It, doesn't. it makes me want to dust every time I hear this. It makes me want to dust. But like, yeah, I do the laundry at our house too. I'm digging out that laundry line. Yeah, no, and it's wear your you mask. Know, exactly, yeah. wear, your, wear your mask when you're doing it. It's yeah. it's one of those things that I think you know what Sally and Chris are also talking about is just that that pathway is really important. And when EPA um, conducted the risk assessment for the national regulation, it, they paid so much attention to this risk pathway. And that was something that I think a lot of people, well, one, they don't know about biosolids, but then two, they probably don't look back at how, what the history of, of it was. And, you know, they paid really a, a lot of attention to what, what is the highest exposed individual and in biosolids use scenarios. And in one, they used a farm, they used farm families to actually test this, to see how it compares to just, you know, regular manure applications and biosolids. And a later study compared the health among those families receiving biosolids and those not. And they discovered there was no significant differences in the health of the human, humans or animals on those sites. And that's, that's a type of rigor that this sector went into to, to develop regulations that are safe to use it. I think we could probably all agree that we'd, we'd all be willing to join forces with anybody to work on a source control plan or campaign because that's really, that's the solution. Um, I, there are small minute risks associated with these chemicals and at the levels in biosolids, actually it's undefined, but the, the risks are, there. Are, there's probably some small risk, but, but the benefits are so great. So we're not willing to throw out the benefits for this small, possibly non-existent risk. But, you know, I think we all agree that these compounds are not good in our environments. And we're discovering that, it affects, I mean, it shows up in breast milk. And if you took all the biosolids out of, off the planet, you, it would still show up in breast milk because it's everywhere. So I think the answer is uh, we, we need a robust campaign for source control. And I think our, our profession would gladly join that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the things we're exposed to and, and we don't even realize it, like you said, um, both in our house and out in, out in nature even. Um, so I think that's, that's a good comparison to make um, is, is to think about what you're already exposed to or, or may not realize that it, it's kind of 
uh, comparison to, to the biosolids that we're talking about. So mm -hmm. I always uh, appreciate the apple seed um, comparison too, because I, I'd never, that one to me, I, when I heard it, I was like, oh, wow, that's, you never really think about it, but apple seeds contain, contain cyanide, but it's not just eating an apple seed won't kill you, but you know, it would take, you know, 150 to several thousand apple seeds to make a lethal dose of cyanide, but it contains it, you know, it's, it's, it's that type of under trying to understand that what concentration and pathway really means. I think that um, Chris kind of alluded to it as well, that we are the, we are the producers, right? Um, I think a lot of times it, we, when people hear about biosolids, they're like, oh, that, that utility over there made that it's, that's not, that's not how it works. If, if that is the, what it is, then we are the raw material and they are the refinery. So we are actually the producers, right? So we need to really own that and, and say, well, you know, if I'm concerned about microplastics and let's figure out a way not to use as many plastics and not use microbeads. And so there's things that we can do. And I think that that's a really powerful message is that we can actually change that. We can be our own source control, right? Um, in, addition, in addition to the source control at the water resource recovery facilities. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think this is a perfect example of what, you know, the sort of term du jour is a circular economy. Everybody's trying to make use of wastes and, and recycling and getting recycling back into the economy and everything. This is a perfect example of that. Our Bloom product, yeah, 20 years ago, it was considered a waste. Uh, and people were just trying to figure out how to get it into uh, a landfill, biosolids, because you know that's that's what our industry did. But we realized, no, it's it's not it's not a liability; it's an asset. It is an asset that uh, has carbon in it, has energy, uh, has fertilizer, nutrients, carbon, um, nitrogen, and phosphorus. And we figured out a way to get it into a form such that people can use it. Our, uh, the thermally hydrolyzed product that we make is extremely low odor, you know, it doesn't smell like what you might think it smells like poop. Um, we recycled 165,000 tons last year, and we're on track to do that again this year. Last year we had zero odor complaints. This year we had zero odor complaints. It's just unheard of. So we can, we can make this formerly known as waste product into something that is desirable. And now we have in the springtime, we can't make enough of it. People want it. The farmers want it. We have to tell people, no, we don't have enough of it. So it's really a perfect example of getting a waste back into the economy. And we're, we're making money on it. We're saving money. We're sequestering carbon in the soil. The farmers aren't using fertilizer, so they don't have to buy that ammonium nitrate, which takes an enormous amount of energy to make. So that's another carbon benefit. Uh, it's just an excellent example of the circular economy at work. On a very personal level, I can't get Chris's product, but I can get a product that I think is even better than Chris's product. No way. <laughs> oh, here the, it goes. <laughs> yeah, City of Tacoma. And we we grow a lot of vegetables at our house. And um, people come and look at my garden and say, what did you do? I had, um, they use a lot of this Tagro product in community gardens in Tacoma. And I had the then head of the Soil Science Society of America come and have a tour of community gardens in Tacoma. And he's looking at one of these community gardens and the plants are exploding. I mean, you have 
more beans, lettuce, peas, strawberries, carrots, anything you want to grow, this stuff is gold. And here he is, and he says, this isn't sustainable. And the guy in charge of the Tacoma program, Dan Thompson, was there. And he's laughing because he knows every day you flush, every day you shower. This is great stuff. I love what my kids say because I, I you know, it's, it's one of those concepts that kids understand very, very, very easily. It's not, it's not difficult for them. They know they flush. They know my kids know where it goes. And I, and when they get asked at school, what does your mom do? They said, she makes soil from what you flush. And because we use that, we get to eat really good food <laughs> that ah, we ate before. Great. And now it's going back to the ground so that we can eat again. And of course they might lose some friends in that conversation, <laughs> but the point is they get it. They get that food security is a big thing. And if we want to eat, and I, I know like this past year, it's been like, you know, infrastructure has been a really big deal, getting clean water, getting, being able to fl flush your toilet. Um, we are at the headworks of that. And it's a very important piece of modern society, but it's also a very important piece of the future of society as well is that we can actually move that needle and make sure that we have food for the future and clean water for the future. Yeah, the kids are the, are the answer. My, my youngest, every time he goes to the bathroom, he'll kill me if he hears this, but he comes out of the bathroom and he goes, dad, just sent you some more green energy and fertilizer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One thing that's, I know it's, it's on the topic list, but it works for your home garden. It works for the farmer. But the other thing is it works for the planet. And in terms of carbon, and that's a big issue as it, it, it needs to be. Um, but I've done a lot with carbon accounting for how you use biosolids. And we just, one thing that's done with biosolids um, in King County, where I live, where Seattle is, and where Miley lives, is a lot of the biosolids are used to fertilize commercial tree plantations. And um, there's been a ton of studies showing that you get much bigger trees much faster when you use biosolids. And we just did a study looking at whether you store more carbon in the soil, and in addition to making those trees bigger. And at a at a high rich soil, we didn't see any carbon storage with the biosolids, but at a lower, less high quality soil, we saw the equivalent of five tons of CO2 for each ton of biosolids you applied. And you can't beat that. So it's good for, it's good for Puget Sound, it's good for Chesapeake Bay, it's great for my home garden. It's great for any farmer that Chris gives it to, but it's also great for the planet. Yeah, we sell ours because ours is class A biosolids. Um, we sell it to a lot of different people. We sell to soil blenders and to construction firms. And there are big construction firms doing projects like highway interchanges where they need a lot of material and they have to meet a very narrow spec that's that's set by the state. In this case, it was the state of Maryland. And they love our product because it is so consistent. Every day it comes out, it's exactly the same. Um, in the past, they would have to go to a compost facility and buy compost, start the project, go back three months later. The guy says, oh, I don't have any more compost. They go to another composter, looks just the same. They get it back and it doesn't meet the spec. 
So what we do is offer this incredible consistency as well. Um, it's, it's helping with construction, it's helping with landscaping. We do athletic fields. We do wetland restor restoration projects here with, with one firm. It's, it's, really, it's really great. I mean, I, I, one of the reasons I like doing it is when before we had this high quality product, we would send it out to farms, but we would have to send it 100, 150 miles away just because there's not farmland right around DC. And now we're using a lot of the product in the service area of DC. So we're, we're uh, our, our rate payers are reaping the benefits. It's really great. Yeah, and you you talked about it, Chris, but the source, the, the way that uh, water resource recovery facilities were set up was they have this automatic process system for quality where if you go to a compost facility, there, a lot of times it's weeding out a lot of the contaminants, right? you'll get those you know, stickers or plastics and it comes in the front end of the system um, where they're having to de deal with that. Then with water resource recovery, it's already built into the process and pre-treatment is built into the process. So what you're getting is a curated product that it was built by design to do that, to make sure that you have clean water and a clean solids product. But it's, it's pretty ingenious because it made product quality so much better too yep. at the end of it. At the end of it, you have this really nice um, product that has been already um, curated through that process. So it's, it's pretty neat. And the other thing too, I wanted to add is biosolids are everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, in some of these hard to reach reclamation projects where they have degraded hillsides or um, mine reclamation that they wanna recover the land that has been just spoiled by digging it for years. Um, there's biosolids near there, guaranteed, <laughs> guaranteed. And, and I think one of the um, things that is so often uh, not thought about is that it is pretty much, if you have a project, you can find a product close by, even in really remote areas like, you know, Northeast Washington or, you know, the middle of Colorado, you can find something because people are making it everywhere. Um, so the access to it is um, pretty phenomenal. Except if you start getting people that run programs like Chris, who are smart enough to realize that the local community is going to want it first and foremost. Right. And so when the mine wreck guy comes and says, can you ship it to me? He'll say, I'll ship it to them, but they have to pay for it now. So it's, it's, right. it's, help, it's helping our rate payers. It's helping us um, uh, really evolve as an organization because we have more money to do more things. I, I always say that the, what we do is accelerated nature. You know, what we do would happen in nature if a bear goes to the river and eats a, eats a piece of salmon and poops in the, on the forest floor that those soil microbes attack it and convert that organic nitrogen into plant available inorganic nitrogen. It just takes 18 months or two years to do that. And we do it in a matter of 20 days. Um, and in order to do that, we concentrate technologies and we, we like that's why we put in thermal hydrolysis because we wanted to um, we wanted digestion not to get too deep into it but without thermal hydrolysis we would have had to put eight tanks in instead we only had to do four and it's I I feel like we're evolving as an industry and because we're doing this more efficiently and we have more money we can then devote our resources to something else it's kind of like uh, I don't know if you read any of Michael Pollan's books but he did one called Cooked. It's all about, one, one part of it is about the, when humans discovered fire and started cooking meat, 
uh, that's one theory as to why our brains have evolved and, and, and grown because the cooked meat requires less energy to break down. Therefore our stomachs could shrink and then our brains could grow and we evolved and everything. And I kind of feel like that's what we're doing here in our industry. You know, we, we put this thermal hydrolysis in, which puts some energy in there and then we need less energy, less uh, smaller stomach and then we can use our resources to do other things. It's kind of a nice parallel. You wanted to get geeky, Jennifer. So ah! <laughs> <laughs> you just dropped it right there. <laughs> Getting all into the science. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any stats um, as to how many cities, municipalities, local you know, organizations um, make biosolids across the country or even across the world? 100% in the US. And there's about 16,000 water resource recovery facilities in the U.S. alone. Um, but that, and, and some of them, you know, might make it on site. Some of them also pair up um, to help each other out. Some of them are really small. So they'll send their solids to, you know, another facility to help process it um, if they don't have the capacity. So it's, it's pretty, um, the, the scale of it always just makes me kind of, it takes me back a little bit because you just don't realize that there is so much, there is, you know, 7.2 million dry tons in the US that's being produced. It's massive, um, but it's not as massive as some, as some of the other products coming out there, but it's still pretty massive. And it's a, it's a resource that we, we have access to. It could I all be, go ahead, Sal. I just, on a worldwide level, I think it's really important to point out that the number of people that have access to advanced wastewater treatment like we do in the US is about the same as the number of people that have no place to poo and have to do open defecation. And that um, one of the Millennium, Ecos Millennium Development Goals is access to clean water. And we're getting better at that, but the vast majority of people on this planet don't have a safe place to poop or a way to treat the poop that they make. So resource recovery and understanding the benefits here is, is part of the critical tasks we have ahead. I'm sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to interrupt with such a like deep thought, but <laughs> I live this at it's home. True. It's no, it's, true. no I, it's, it's all true. I was just gonna say that, you know, of that, 7.2 million dry tons sounds like a lot, but we could we could use all of it. I mean, some of it still does end up in landfills, and, and there's there's plenty of agricultural land out there. Uh, and and agriculture is hard on soils, which means that carbon is depleted. So there's 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 an enormous sink out there for us to put this carbon in, and we could do this for hundreds and hundreds of years, and and it, it could be sustainable. Sally knows more about it than me, but the 7.2 million ton dry tons that are out there um, all could be reused easily. And it's not enough. It's not enough, no. If you right. did this, as Miley said, 0.1% of ag land in the US on a worldwide level, even if everybody's poop was made safe and pathogen free, it would help a lot of farmland, but yeah. It's, it's such a good tool and we don't have enough. And that, that is one of the things that drives me crazy is I've seen how fabulous this stuff is and the fact that any of it is wasted. Um, it, it just sounds like you think 
I got interviewed by um, an NPR affiliate at a Boise and they asked me like, so what's wrong with landfilling bus? I was like, would you throw a steak in the garbage? <laughs> you know, this is steak for your soil. And the fact that on a worldwide level, this hasn't been, even on a US level that this hasn't been recognized all over is yeah. one of my no. passions. Yeah. I, yeah, totally. And that, to, you know, to add on to that, Sally, I, I, we drive through Eastern Washington a bit, um, going to and from, to and from places. And uh, one of the things that we've seen and we hear about is the dryland farmers that are out there raising wheat. You know, a lot of them are not going to be able to even make um, their quotas or even their like low quota of what they would hope to make. Some of them will go out of business because they cannot there's not been enough rain with the little, little bit of rain that they get. There's not been enough rain, but here's this whole organic matter mass that could be used and putting, um, helping soil retain water and, and, and have those nutrients in there and, and to help those farmers. It's just so sad that we can't um, deliver it to all of that that land that needs it and that, they're, they're, that it's not accepted as well by some communities. But I think, and it's hard to think this sometimes to get into the deep, the deep weeds on it, but, you know, having kids as well, you know, there's a point where this has been a very convenient lifestyle that we have, but there will be a point where we don't even have a decision whether or not we want to use it. We will have to use it because soil is, we're so dependent upon it and water with water scarcity we're going to need to have, make sure that our soil, we bolster it as much as we can to make sure that we can have food and, and keep farms going. Yeah. And phosphorus is not going to be here forever. Right. So this is a, this is a continuous source of phosphorus into perpetuity. Can I get geeky again? I, I just thought of one other thing you, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned watering and drought. The, one of the other benefits is that the microbial activity in, in the biosolids um, helps with drought resistance. You know, we, we used to see this with farmers all the time. You know, there'd be one farmer who used biosolids uh, and in a dry year right across the fence, there was a farmer who, there would be a farmer who used inorganic fertilizer and their crop would be all brown and shriveled and the bios, and the biosolids crops would be green and lush. And we always thought, well, you know, you're adding carbon, which means you're adding water holding capacity. But if you do the math, we're not adding enough to make, to hold enough water to make that big a difference. And I was having a conversation with, a researcher from Virginia Tech one time at a conference, just having a couple of beers afterwards, Greg Avanlo. And I said, why do, why do you think this is happening? And he said, uh, you know, uh, we do compost research and we found that when the composting is a microbial activity, uh, when the microbes break down that organic nitrogen into plant available inorganic nitrogen, they secrete these essential plant hormones, auxins and cytokinins that plants need to get through stressful conditions like drought. And this light bulb went over my head. I said, well, that's what we're doing at the treatment plant because we have nitrogen removal and we're converting organic nitrogen to nitrogen gas. I said, do you think it's possible that we have these auxins and cytokinins? He said, well, let's check it out. So he tested it and we had these super elevated levels of these naturally occurring, very important um, uh, plant compounds. And so he did a greenhouse study and then he did a field study and proved that th this phenomenon is actually occurring because of the microbial activity and the microbes that we use at the treatment plant, which occur in nature. I mean, they're the same ones as in nature. We're adding these incredibly important compounds to the biosolids and the farmers benefit from it and their crops can resist drought. So 
I'm done, done geeking out. <laughs> but it's just another well, aspect, another positive aspect. And then you're not getting the uh, runoff and pollutants from the, the fertilizers and pesticides and everything that yeah. get in, back into the water system that you then have to clean out again, right? Yep. And you don't have to apply the fertilizer, which takes an enormous amount of energy to make. So you save the carbon there. Yeah. Well, I like the circular mindset. And um, like, like you mentioned earlier, you know, we have to get more creative with how we manage our land and water in the coming years. I mean, our population's only growing. Um, we're going to need more food and water for folks. And Unfortunately, you know, both are, are kind of becoming harder to find because of degraded land and because of, you know, loss of water to drought or to the ocean or, or any number of things that um, are caused by climate change and other things. So uh, I think this is, is probably a good start and, and, you know, one piece of the puzzle that we're going to have to um, put forth to, to kind of address those big issues. So. Is there anything else you guys would add that we haven't talked about or any resources you would share with our listeners who want to learn more? This could Here. be a really big geek session. <laughs> That's all I'll just say that. But yeah, go ahead, Sally. Northwest Biosolids, Miley ran that organization for many years. Um, fabulous source of information. Um, look up in the city where you live. Look and see what happens to your wastewater. Uh, Bloom DC Water has great web resources where I live, Loop, the King County Biosolids. So, so just wherever you live, see what happens when you flush. And it's your poop that we're talking about. So find out if you're helping the world when you flush. We like to say there's no such thing as waste, only wasted resources. So, you know, really every time you flush, if you're, if you're, if your community isn't recycling, if it's trapping it in the landfill, it's, it's really, it's a complete waste. Yeah, and I'm just echoing that. Yeah, the poop, the poop food loop, own it, own <laughs> it. <laughs> you, you do it, and if you don't, if you say you don't do it, you're a big fat liar <laughs> because everybody <laughs> does it. And it's something that we all need to own. That's, and it's a powerful thing. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something that we, we can actually move the needle on climate change and food security and all of these things. If we just simply said, I poop, cause we do, and it's okay. And it's really just digested food. And, um, and that's what we want. We took it from the ground, give it back to the ground so that we can make more. So poop to save the planet. You heard it here first. <laughs> For all yeah, I mean, that's why I come to work every day. I don't, I don't have this. I don't love poop. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> what? No, I just, I mean, I, I do it because I see it as an enormous opportunity to do something for the planet and set a precedent for others to do the same thing. And it's just, you know, if we all did this, it could make a huge difference. That's, that's why I come to work every day. So one last thing is if you are at a point where you're looking for what to do with your future and you care about the planet, you know, you could do a lot worse than work in wastewater resource recovery. Yeah. Every time we drive past a waste a water resource recovery plant, we I say to my kids, we're gonna honk and we're gonna wave. <laughs> <laughs> because it is, and I think Sally talked about, it, it is the civil service um, that they provide that if you just took that out of the equation, imagine what life would be like. It would be really scary. And there are places that 
are struggling with that. And so where we can lend a hand in that, where we can lend a hand in just letting people know, connecting people back to what it all means and, and how important it really is. Um, yeah, give your water resource recovery operators a high five if you see them. They're doing important work. Yeah, to think just a few hundred years ago, we were literally dumping our chamber pots out the window or, yeah. you know. It's pretty insane, yeah. Yeah, how far we've come and how, um, how needed and important the work is, like you said, so. Well, with that, um, I'm going to move us on to our green life hacks. And this is where we share an idea or a practice or a resource that um, folks can take and implement into their lives to help reduce their carbon footprint. So um, who would like to go first? Any volunteers? Chris, would you like to be the first one? Yeah, I don't know that this is necessarily a uh, reduced carbon footprint, but it's uh, maybe it is. I don't know. I um I love bees, <laughs> and we have bees at at work here, uh, and they're super nice and super gentle. And I think I think everybody should should host bees. We have bees on our roof at home, and we and we have honey, and I do it with my kids, and they learn about nature and pollination, and we have we have beautiful figs because of it. I think uh, you know a lot of people are afraid of bees, um, but a lot of a lot of cities have. Um, groups, volunteers who want nothing more than to find a home for uh, a swarm that they've collected. You know, they're, they're trying to educate people to ensure that they don't head out to the tree where they see a swarm and hit it with uh, a can of raid. And they collect these swarms and then they need to find homes for them. And uh, I'm here to tell you, it is a beautiful thing and they're not scary. And they, you can have them at home and have them at work. So bees, that's my life hack. These are amazing. And um, I've, I had to have bees removed from the inside wall of my house uh, yeah. three times when I lived in my old house um, and a beekeeper came out and, and rescued them. But um, yeah, that is definitely an important part of our ecosystem and don't call just any exterminator, call a professional yes, <laughs> beekeeper. <laughs> um, Sally, what is your green life hack? So just that when you take a walk and you see garbage on the street, pick it up, put it in the trash. It, it's a simple, easy thing to do. Um, and it makes our world a prettier, nicer place. Uh, there's a term for this that started, I think, I don't, in Scandinavia called plogging, I think. Um, picking up trash as you're jogging. I Jogging is not what I do. but. Um, I, I swim and swimming groups I know of will pick up trash as they swim. Just even if you didn't put it there, you can help make it better by taking it away. That is a great one. <laughs> Miley, how about you? I think, you know, um, one of the things that I think, and it's maybe not like a green life hack, but it's just like a good human life hack is share, share your harvest. I think that that's one of the things that I think Sally, you know, I've, I've eaten at Sally's house many times and she's a very good cook. She was actually a cook in a former life. Um, but sharing your harvest says so much because you're, you're growing your food, but then you're also really proud of it, right? So you're sharing it and it's building community around it. And anytime we go to a function and I, 
this might be more because I come from a very large Hawaiian family. You bring something. There's no ever excuse that you don't bring something. <laughs> Even if they say, no, don't do it. I'm bringing you rhubarb. I'm bringing you cucumbers. I'm bringing you zucchini. I don't even care <laughs> if you said no. <laughs> We're bringing you something because I think it shows people that one, you care about other humans and two, you care about the earth and you want to just be proud about what you grew and share it with people. So I think share your bounty. I shared my figs last night with a bunch of people. They loved it. Anybody right. want some green beans? <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah, uh, there is something very special about giving or receiving something that you grew yourself. It's it's very personal and, and it's, um, you know, when someone gives me something they've grown, it's it's like, wow, you spent the time and the energy making this and you're giving it to me. This means a lot. So once I'm able to have a garden again, I will definitely take that on. Well, we'll help you find biosolids in Ireland. <laughs> Actually, when I was researching for this, I, since I'm in Ireland, a lot of local, um, you know, organizations that do this came up. So it is definitely uh, practiced here. And, and I'm glad to know that my poop is um, going to good use in, no matter where I am. <laughs> Um, so my green life hack is, is sort of on theme with the show. Um, I know that a lot of folks use the wet wipes when they use the bathroom to clean themselves. And a lot of them say they're flushable, but um, at least what I've read, and you guys are the experts, you can confirm this, is that even if they say they're flushable, they should not be flushed because they will clog up the pipes and they don't break down correctly. So yes. if you- thank you. Okay. <laughs> So um, that is confirmed. So if you have to use them, throw them away or even better um, invest in a bidet. That's, you know, a way to clean yourself. That's actually a lot more eco-friendly because you're not producing waste in this case. Um, so that's my green life hack is either switch to a bidet or throw your wipes away or just don't use them. But thank you for the PSA. That is very important. Yeah. Life hack. And there's another, I just heard of another um, way to do that because some people really do like the wipes, um, get a diaper genie, you know, or something like that, right. You know, that you can, if it's something that you don't want to have in your wastebasket, but you want just put it in the container so, so that you can still use them, but just throw, throw them out. It's a great idea. Yeah. I, I can't imagine the logistical uh, problems it causes too on the, the treatment and having all that stuff plus whatever else people throw down the toilets and one well, and to hear the commercials come on you're like no <laughs> please don't say that they're flushable come on man they're I know not. I gave I gave my son a lesson in marketing because he had one, some of those that I don't know where he got them he's like it says flushable I, like, I said that's a lie it's a lie to you <laughs> I believe everything that you see yeah. on TV. <laughs> No, I came on a little strong. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did the same thing. Actually, I was at a, a dinner and I, I went to the bathroom and in the bathroom, there was um, a cleanser and I, I will not name this person, but there was a cleanser and it had microbeads and I'm, I came out and we happened to be eating like fish too. I'm like, do you see this? Don't use this. It ends up in that fish and then you'll eat it. So if you want to buy this, just eat it. And then <laughs> I haven't been back to that house. <laughs> so Yikes. I think I came on a little strong too. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you just, you're in the moment and you feel passionate about it. I know. Yeah. We, we, we take it kind of seriously. <laughs> in a similar vein, my sister um, 
tells people that she doesn't eat fish because she doesn't eat plastic. Oh, wow. So, you know, that, that's a good way to tell people too, like, well, I don't like eating plastic, so I'm just going right. to not eat <laughs> Yeah. Which unfortunately is something we have to deal with now. Um, all right, guys. Well, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate your time and, and sharing your expertise with our listeners. Um, let's go around and tell folks where they can find you or your organization online. Any, um, any links you'd like to share with folks? So Chris, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, our, our website is bloomsoil.com. It has a ton of information on, on our bloom products. It has uh, risk studies. It has links to all kinds of things, links to the Northwest Biosolids and Mid-Atlantic Biosolids Associations. Um, so check it out there. Thanks. Great. Sally? Um, so I'm Sally Brown, University of Washington. Very easy to Google, but loop for your soil or northwestbiosolids.org are two great local resources that have half my soul in them. <laughs> At least. At least. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. I, I'm Miley Lona Batura. I work with uh, Water Environment Federation. So you can go to wef.org for more information about that organization and some of the great work that they're doing. Uh, they have a biosalts page um, also as Sally and uh, Chris mentioned the regional associations in your area or your country. There's um, there's a European group too um, that has their EFAR and they're online and they talk about all the similar things of where to find resources and how to get uh, organic amendments back into the soil and, and where to find um, research on that out there. So that's another good um, source. And I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can search me. I think there's a loop video of, of me talking about finding out about biosolids in high school. So yeah, I um, definitely look, look up biosolids, learn more about it and connect to it where you can. Great. And uh, Chris and Miley, I'm assuming your organizations all have social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. Yeah, at DC Water for us, for all of those. Yeah, and we have, um, WEF does as a Water Environment Federation does as well. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Het's Gonna Be Me. I'm also, um, of course, on this show and occasionally on our parent show, Epically Geeky, and then our book club show, Marginally Geeky. Um, as you can see, we have a very consistent theme. <laughs> and um, you can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. We also have a Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter page. So please check us out there. And if you do subscribe to us, um, give us a five-star rating, share with your friends, et cetera. If you have other ideas for topics, we're open to that. So just send us a message there. Um, thank you guys again for being on and thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network. 